Your initials were both JC, and they lived within 45 years of each other. But how vastly different is this Prince Jesus Christ from that other great prince of the ancient world, Julius Caesar? Jesus, a low-income carpenter, an itinerant preacher, comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's code in ancient politics for coming to make peace, not war. He arrives less than a week before his gruesome execution. Julius Caesar, on the other hand, has risen to power as a great military soldier. He comes, whenever he came, on a steed, the splendid and impressive war horse. In a great civil war, he defeated a man who had once been his ally, the Roman general Pompey, and chased him all the way to Egypt. And then after having an affair with Cleopatra in June 47 BC, Caesar went on a campaign in Asia Minor where he crushed an ambitious prince named Pharnaces. Caesar memorialized that particular victory in the now famous inscription, I came, I saw, I conquered. A year later, the Roman Senate conferred upon Caesar the title dictator for ten years. Not so Prince Jesus. Given what he did, he might well have written, I came, I saw, I surrendered. In a few minutes, we are going to finish the story in the song that we started before Recalling the fickle crowd's insistence that Pontius Pilate release a political terrorist who had committed murder rather than release Jesus, we're going to sing this in stanza five. They rise and needs will have my dear Lord made away. A murderer they save, the prince of life they slay. Yet... Cheerful he to sufferings goes, that he his foes from thence might free. Jesus goes without a fight to his death in order to free from captivity his foes, his enemies. Now that is not how the great power brokers of the world get places or rally the masses and the armies behind them. That is not how they win. Whether first century B.C. Rome or 21st century A.D. in 2016 America, the political orders of the world do not gain their victories by surrender, but by conquest. In the kingdom of God, however, The truly decisive victory was gained by surrender. What makes the world turn is power exercised in conquest. 
And it doesn't really matter whether we are talking about military weapons or terror or political machinations and propaganda or even votes. In all of them, conquest is the name of the game. Now, what makes the kingdom of God turn is also power. But, and it's a paradox, it is the power of surrender. On the Tuesday after, Jesus rode into Jerusalem to these great shouts of Hosanna and the waving of palm branches. Jesus told a parable, a story made up to illustrate something that's true. It's in the 12th chapter of Mark, beginning at verse 1. It's inside your bulletin on one of the sides of the insert there. It is a dramatic moment, actually, when Jesus tells this parable. It is a moment of real confrontation between Jewish Jesus and the Jewish clergy, the religious establishment of Jerusalem. As you read through Mark's gospel, you are struck by what must have been a very painful loneliness in Jesus. Some of you are battling, even right now, an intense time of loneliness in your life. Jesus is without sympathy and understanding from others. He is very much alone as he goes down, further down the deep descent toward the awful abyss that was the cross, the horrific instrument of his torture and death. Just a bit before this, in Mark, in chapter 11, the religious authorities, that is, the chief priests and teachers of the law, they tried to trip Jesus up by exposing the fact that he had no official church authority, which is true. And that upset them because he was doing outrageous things like throwing the currency exchange guys out of the temple. But Jesus turned their attempt right back on them and he posed a trick question to them. He couldn't answer it. They were hamstrung and reduced to silence. And then Jesus tells them this parable in order to confront them with the magnitude of the monstrous crime they are about to commit in putting him to death. Beginning at verse 1 here, And he, that is Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. Now what Jesus seems to be doing here is taking up the parable that God once gave to his people through the prophet Isaiah. Listen to Isaiah 5. Let me sing for my beloved my song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield good grapes, but it yielded only wild and poor grapes. Now in Isaiah's parable... It's the whole vineyard that's the problem. It produces only wild, 
small, decrepit fruit. The whole nation of Israel, in other words, has been unfaithful to God. Now, Jesus takes up that parable, but in Mark chapter 12, he changes it a bit. Now it's the keepers of the vineyard who are at fault. That is the religious leaders in Israel's, in Jesus' day, rather. Mark 12, verse 1, just compressed a bit. A man planted a vineyard and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now, we don't have time to do justice this morning to something, but there is a theme right here that is terribly important. Jesus presupposes it. It's what would later come to be called the doctrine of the deus absconditus, the God who absconds, who hides himself. Ever since our first parents Sin. There is a real and profound sense in which God has withdrawn. Don't we live daily with this sense that God has gone off into a, another country? Our hearts ache so keenly sometimes do we feel his absence. We find ourselves longing for, we find ourselves pining for the time when he will return. Heaven will come down. The city of Jerusalem comes down, we read in Revelation 21. And heaven and earth are then reunited, and then it says, and the dwelling of God will be with man. All the redeemed daughters and sons of Adam, and it will be forever. Now, it's true that in the here and now we are not left utterly alone. But on the far side of the fall and the short side of glory, which is exactly where we live, God comes to us through intermediaries almost all the time. Now here in the parable, the first intermediary is a hired servant. He's sent to the vineyard to collect the profits from the wine-making renters in the form of wine. It says he was sent to retrieve some of the fruit. It was common then, not just to get cash, but to get some of what was produced. But look at verse 3. These renters, these leasers of the farm, so to speak, took him and beat him And sent him away empty-handed. Now, who do these servants, these business agents from the home office, so to speak, represent in the story? Well, they represent the prophets in the Old Testament. The ones that God kept on sending to his people again and again to win their hearts back to him. But what did they come with? They came with the word of God, which was a mirror. And they held that up to Israel. And when they held up God's word as a mirror to the Lord's people and showed them the warts and the disfigurements on the face of their faith and their character and their morality, it was more than they could bear. They smashed the mirror. And so often they killed the messenger. Well, so the vineyard owner sends a second servant to represent him. 
What would you do if you were the owner of the farm after you sent a second rep to the client and he returns having been severely beaten in the head? What would you do? Call the police? Hire a lawyer? Look at verse 4. Again, he sent to them another servant, the second one, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. What about after the third person you sent? What about after the fourth? What about after the fifth? Look at verse 5. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. Some of you know that Greg Zavalia, his dad's the head of a construction company, and that Greg works for him. It's called ICS. Well, imagine that Mr. Z takes his family and his whole staff at ICS and he leaves St. Louis, goes on a long trip, and he leases his company with all of his equipment and his property to some men who promise that they will maintain it in his absence. Well, after a year goes by, he sends back his accountant to collect some of the rent due to him. Don't be impertinent and ask, well, why does he have to send somebody back? Can't he just do an EFT, an electronic funds transfer? They couldn't do that for some reason. So the accountant comes back and he arrives in St. Louis, but the men leasing the company, they don't give him a dime, and what's worse, they beat him up. And they send him packing. So Mr. Z sends another company wreck and the same rep and the same thing happens again and again. But then finally Mr. Z stops and he thinks to himself, wait a second, I have a son. I've still got Greg. I'll send him. He's my son. They will respect him after all. I'm the head of the company. I hired these guys. It's my property and my equipment. Surely they will Respect my very own son. Perhaps that will wake them up and they will come to their senses. Don't I have a right to expect that? And so Mr. Z sends Greg. Well, one day the renters see Greg walking across the parking lot and they say to each other, look who's coming. This must mean that old man Zavalia is dead. And here's his son coming now to inherit the company. Now's our chance. Let's kill him, and the whole place will be ours. In the ancient world, there's evidence that in ancient Israel there was the so-called right of appeal for ownerless property. If there was property and there were no heirs, you could make a claim for it in a court. Perhaps this is what these renters are thinking. And so Greg walks through the door on behalf of his father, and they murder him in cold blood. Now we would think, would we not, how outrageous. That's our love of justice and goodness. It would be stirred up to a kind of mighty indignation. But wouldn't we also think, Mr. Zavalia, a little naive? We're sending Greg back into the hands of these obviously dangerous and ruthless men. Well, the vineyard owner, 
who is God in the story, is not as smart as you and me. He does what we think is beyond naivete and utterly foolish. He does send his son straight into the clutches of these dangerous and ruthless men who have already beaten and murdered many of his messengers. Verse 6, he still, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. And we find ourselves, if we're reading the story with sensitivity, thinking, really? What part of we hate you doesn't the owner understand? God appears like a doddering old man here, wanting to believe the best about people, but caught up in a kind of profound denial. It's as if we are expecting the landlord to say next, well, these renters are not really that bad, you just have to know them. They'll respect my son, he says, amazingly enough. What on earth makes him think so? Well, because he's my son. He's not just a marketing rep or even my company's legal counsel. I am the owner, after all. And this is my own son. They wouldn't be so brazen as to disregard and hurt him. Surely, such a hard-hearted trashing of justice and goodwill is not possible. Well, it's easy to guess how it all ends. Verse 7, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. How could they? And they did. They killed the son himself. There is tremendous warning to the religious leaders in this parable. As there was to all of Israel in Isaiah's parable of the vineyard. If you read after Isaiah tells that story of the vineyard in Isaiah 5, a couple verses later, and God is speaking there to the southern kingdom, which was still in existence. And God said, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, you judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild and poor grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled upon. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice. But behold, found bloodshed for righteousness. But behold, an outcry.
Well, look here. Something very similar is in Jesus' parable. Verse 8, And they took the son and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And then Jesus poses the question, What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? And this is what we heard from the call to worship this morning, Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone, the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, what is Jesus' point in this parable? It is not only the outrageousness of their defiance against God, these religious leaders, but he is also stressing the utter and absolute folly of the tenant farmers who think that by violence and coercion they can wrestle the whole vineyard out of the hands of the owner and get away with it. Jesus told this story, Mark tells us a little bit before, in the temple precincts. Quote to the chief priests and the scribes and the elders who approached him and challenged him. And they got it big time that this story was for them. That Jesus was painting a bullseye, as it were, right on their foreheads. And so we read in verse 12, And they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Good guess. So they left him and went away. Be warned, Jesus insinuates, if you think that by killing me you can thwart my father's purpose to claim his kingdom. It will never happen. Now it's easy, I think, to be on the side of Jesus as he tells this story. To see how manifestly stupid it was for these tenants to think that just because the landlord had gone away, he was powerless to claim what was rightfully his. Or the way they just assumed that because he hadn't come back, he must be dead. But is it easy to be on the side of Jesus when we step out of the parable and into our living, into the world situation right at the present time, into our country's political circumstances right now? Doesn't it feel sometimes like God is off somewhere and powerless to claim what is rightfully his, which is every square inch of the world? As one Dutch Christian famously put it. And is it easy, really, to fathom the behavior of the landlord in this story, how he risks the well-being of his son. He just hands him over. It seems so naive to us. He hands him over to profound danger, to be misused and maybe even killed. 
especially when we ponder that in the story, the landlord is God. But surely Jesus is not implying that God is naive in sending his son into the world and handing him over to us. That line in verse 6, surely they will respect my son, is not God being in denial about the world. Surely, Jesus puts that in the story to underscore what God had every right to expect from us and yet knew he wouldn't get. And here, of course, the analogy between God and the landlord breaks down because God knows they will kill his son. And the son knows that he will die at their hands. But he goes willingly to his death. He surrenders himself to it. Why? Why? Because in that self-giving of Jesus, the most potent moral and spiritual power the world has ever known was at work to rescue us from ourselves so that one day what would bleed out of the children of Adam and be gone forever is that instinct that we fight Every child of Adam fights every day that self-centered instinct to subdue, to conquer, to overpower, and use other persons. Friends, not in the power of conquest, but in the great overwhelming power of Jesus' sacrificial surrender, which was the power of love, lies the great hope of the world. In a wonderful paradox, love did conquer by surrendering. Julius Caesar in 46 BC, I think was the year, led three triumphs, as they were called, in Rome, these fantastic parades through the streets of Rome for his victories in Egypt, in Asia Minor, and in Africa. And the custom was for the conquering general to ride in a splendid chariot, drawn not by one war horse, drawn by four powerful war horses, lavish gifts being given, the people celebrating with great games throughout the city. Well, Jesus is given kind of a triumph. There's a crowd. There's some palm branches. There's some kids yelling. But he's weeping for his enemies in the city on his way into town, Luke tells us. And he is riding not on a war horse, but on a donkey. Two short years after his triumphs, 
Caesar is dead, murdered by an assassin. But only five short days after his triumph coming into Jerusalem, Jesus is also murdered, this time by a judicial decree. But we know the story. He stays dead for just a few days, whereas the dust of Caesar's bones is somewhere in the earth even today. Self-surrender wins. Love conquers. In the death of the sun, the very thing that the prince of darkness thought he could use to rob God, our guilt is forever covered. And we are free people if our trust is in Christ. Love conquers because God conquers. And God is love. Now, does this mean that all political order in the world is of the devil and that we should withdraw from it because it involves to such a large degree the power of conquest? It does that even according to Romans 13. And the answer, of course, is not at all. Political order is a ministry established by God, and it is therefore honorable, and we should, in fact, be engaged in it. But friends, never forget what it is, temporary and very much reliant on fear and self-interest. It is a ministry of restraint and reward, but it is something merely propped up by God for a time now, to maintain order and peace. We have no reason to think that our political structures have any place in the powers of the age to come, as the writer to the Hebrews puts it. That's why the psalmist warns, and you can see it on the front of your bulletin, in Psalm 146, do not put your trust in presidents, Princes, fair enough. We don't live under princes anymore. Inhuman beings who cannot save. It doesn't mean withdraw and do not be involved. It says do not put a kind of final and ultimate trust in them. They are human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground on that very day. Their plans come to nothing. On the contrary, blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. But Prince Jesus, yes, it's true, like every other prince who has ever lived and will live, he died. But on the third day, he was raised to the power of an indestructible life. His kingdom is forever. Well, all the kingdoms of this world have already begun to pass away even the ones freshly rising. Jesus came from his majesty in heaven. He saw our great need and the pain of the world. He surrendered to evil men and to the will of his Father in heaven who used those evil men 
to win us back by the atoning death of his son and by his spectacular resurrection. All because both the Father and the Son loved us. Prince Christ is the one we must set our eyes on now, where we are in the spring of 2016. He is the one we must keep our eyes on, even as we go forward.